Let's travel back in time a little bit, Eric. All righty. The year is 1995. I'm a little younger then than I am now. Kind of a gothy kid. Wore annoying jewelry with too many skulls on it. <laughs> and really just starting to work for a living. Imagine a, a cool autumn night. I, I work the night shift, so I, I start work at 1230. And I like to get there early. I'm a better early than late kind of guy. And I'm sitting in my car and I'm skipping channels. Just trying to find something to listen to. And I'm, I'm particular, so there are very few radio stations around here that really grab my interest. And I jump to the AM stations. And I'm skipping around the AM stations, and, and I hear a voice I've never heard before, but I got to be quite familiar with over the years. And uh, I don't know who he is at that, that moment in time, but I know what he's talking about. And I, I, he's talk, and I was fascinated with the vampires, Eric. Interview with a vampire. I had read the books. I'd seen the movie, The Lost Boys. Oh, You talk about vampires. Yeah. I was there. And he's talking about some creature in South America leaving corpses behind with puncture marks. A vampire beast. Leaving bloodless corpses behind. And I think this is right up my alley. And it's just a short little while later when I realize I'm listening to Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. (laughs) And uh, again, I would become very familiar with that radio show. Golden classics. He was talking about the Chupacabra. And at at, at a certain point, that, that creature entered into my brain. And and that was the first night I'd ever heard of it. Did you make it to work or did you just stay out and listen to the radio? I had to go to work. I didn't get to finish the show. Oh, man. But tonight, tonight we're going to talk about that, that blood-sucking beast known as the Chupacabra. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Like I said, tonight we're talking about the Chupagabra, which literally translates into goat sucker from the Spanish. Uh, the first recording sightings of, of what we know as the Chupacabra were reported in Puerto Rico in 1995. Chupacabra has no folklore or history prior to that. It's relatively a, a new yeah. cryptid. Uh, now, there are some instances before 1995 that could be linked to the Chupacabra. We're going to talk about those a little bit. But it's, it does derive its name from the creature's habit of attacking livestock and drinking their blood. Now, we do have two distinct types of chupacabra when we talk about the chupacabra. The original South American Puerto Rican version is a, a small alien-like reptilian creature. It is short in stature. Many describe it the size of a small bear. Skin is usually described as covered in hair, usually black, but with the ability to change colors like a chameleon. It has a row of uh, pointed spines that run down the middle of its back, large black eyes, and uh, is said to move in a hopping fashion similar to that of a kangaroo. Some people describe a sulfur-like odor when they encounter the creature. Some don't. Uh, it does have a tail, and some people say that the tail is used to help guide the creature when it flies, hmm. which some accounts do have the, the chupacabra able to fly. Some don't. Occasionally, sightings of the chupacabra are accompanied by UFO sightings. Now, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more. Now, sightings have been reported as far back potentially is 1970. And again, we don't have documented sightings of the Chupacabra until 1995, but there are events prior to that, which you could attribute to a similar creature. Mm -hmm. You know, Puerto Rico seems to be the focal point. 
Uh, there have been sightings of, of uh, chupacabras as far north of, as Maine and as far south as Chile. And uh, they do have sightings outside the Americas, as, such as Russia and the Philippines. Uh, the first real documented potential chupacabra attacks, you could say those happened in 1975 in the small village of Mocha. Uh, these were originally attributed to the El Vampiro de Mocha, or the Vampire of Mocha. And uh, the locals believe they were committed by a satanic cult. Uh, basically, a lot of livestock had been turning up dead. Many many farms in the area were losing animals, and each animal was reported to have had its body bled dry through a series of small circular incisions. Um, as we talk about the chupacabra, you're going to find that a lot of these stories do kind of bear some similarities to the cattle mutilation phenomenon. Uh, I don't believe we've talked about that yet on an episode. Uh, a little bit we've, on we've touched on range. it on some of them, yeah. but you almost have the surgical precision, like removal of organs and stuff like that, which... There are various explanations, and if we ever do a full-on cattle mutilation episode, we'll talk about those. But you have this, this 1975 potential chupacabra attack. Now, in 1995 to 96 is really when the chupacabra comes to prominence. Like I said, they were talking about it on Coast to Coast AM when I was a much younger guy in my teens listening to the radio and just fascinated with this story. Like, the chupacabra just grabbed my attention. And after that, I became a regular listener of Coast to Coast AM. <laughs> I wanted to know more about this thing. And then, you know, if you listen to Coast to Coast AM, you know, they, they really, you know, every episode's a different thing. And then really Similar kind to of, our podcast, but kind, earlier yeah. version. Yeah. And then, and, and really, I, and I've said this before, I think if you're listening to us, you, you're probably familiar with Coast to Coast AM. Between 1995 and 1996, there were over 2,000 animal deaths in Puerto Rico blamed on El Chupacabra. Uh, the first attacks actually blamed on chupacabra happened in March of 1995 when eight sheep were discovered dead in Port in Puerto Rico. Uh, each had a puncture wound in its chest and was drained of blood. And uh, it, this would have been in the town of Canovanas. And in August, there was an eyewitness, uh, Madeline Tolatino. She reported seeing the creature. Uh, she described the creature as four feet high with oddly d wide, dark eyes, thin arms, three fingers, and it stood on two legs. Uh, they said the creature lacked ears, had small air holes instead of a nose, feathery spikes on its back, and I'd like to report that it lacked genitals. Mm, that's a pretty up-close uh, observation. Yeah. You're really paying attention when you can <laughs> give you that kind of detail. Um, and in, in this particular like Puerto Rican village, there was many as 150 farm animals and pets reportedly killed. Now, after this first wave of attacks, other animals were reported in, in other countries all over and then in the Americas and South America. Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru, and even as far north as the United States. Now, this little alien-like creature was, was pretty active, and, and he was running around all over the place. October 29th, 1995, which this is probably the story that, that would have caught the attention on, on Coast to Coast, the one that I was listening to, the mayor of Canovanas, Puerto Rico, gathered the townsfolk together, and they were going to put a stop to what's going on. <laughs> so it, it's documented that they did have a baby goat locked inside a five foot by five foot cage. Uh, well, not necessarily. He wasn't locked in there. He was a bait. Right. And they were going to capture the chupacabra in this five by five cage. The intent was to capture. They did not want to kill it. And even supposedly they'd heard some gunfire from outside of town. And one of the villagers came running up and he's like, I saw the chupacabra. And they're like, you fool, quit shooting at it. We want to catch it. You know, they didn't want to run it off. They didn't want it out there. the favorite movie line? He's no good to me dead. Yeah, he's no good to me dead. <laughs> um, but the beast had been attacking all manner of livestock in the town. Uh, it got to where locals were afraid to leave their homes. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the witness I mentioned earlier, Madeline Tolentino, she was so traumatized by seeing the beast that uh, it said she had to be hospitalized. Wow. Uh, so imagine, yeah. Uh, again, this little hairy, gray-eyed demon hopping around like a kangaroo. Or it almost, it almost sounds comical, but yeah, apparently it it it's so you know messed with her and, and her well-being. She ended up being hospitalized because she saw it. Uh, also, the same kind of flap. You have a Michael Negron, an engineering student, said he watched the beast for about 10 minutes from his balcony. He described it as having skin like a dinosaur with multicolored spikes and eyes the size of hen's eggs. So you get a pretty consistent description, although the skin, some describe it as reptilian, some say it's hair covered, some say it's like a dinosaur. Some say it had feathers. Yeah. So you have another local, uh, Luis Ismael Guadalupe, was fishing when he saw the creature, and he described it as an ugly, as ugly as a demon as it swooped through the air. So here you have that flying chupacabra. Now, does this have wings, I assume, then, in this version? Uh, my readings is that it was, uh, if you want to s- compare it to like a flying squirrel. And had that, that fleshy kind of membrane. Flaps, kind of. Yeah. So okay. it could kind of, maybe it was, maybe it could be more accurately described as gliding than flying. Okay. But that was the descriptions I had read. All right. He said it had a long uh, pointed tongue that came out of its mouth, which maybe that's how it's puncturing and draining the blood. Uh, and he said it was gray, but that the back of the creature changed colors. So again, you have this color changing, Chameleon, this little kind of maybe. creepy little guy running around. Uh, November 18th, 1995. A luminous disc, uh, roughly 40 feet in diameter, with a row of dark windows, is sighted hovering over the radio station at Barranquitas, Puerto Rico. Uh, the station's electronic equipment goes crazy, including obsolete equipment from 1957 stored in the station, turning itself on while not plugged into power. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Now you're wondering how is this related to the Chupacabra? Uh, well, not, not long before this particular incident, a female witness had observed the creature roaming the region. So you have these UFO sightings that seem to coincide with sightings of the Chupacabra. So, uh, again, is, 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 is it a natural creature? Is it something being dropped off? I, I'm, I'm kind of being reminiscent here of the Predator dogs in the movie <laughs> franchise of Predator, you know, kind of deal. So, I mean, there were, there were other sightings of the Chupacabra. There's other, there's other stories of the Chupacabra, and we're going to continue to kind of look at that a little bit. But as we, we get to this point, I do want to say that... Uh, the origins of the Chupacabra are, are nearly X-Files-esque yeah. in, 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 in their telling. The locals have story in the 1990s era here that uh, the, have documented the U.S. military reportedly uh, capturing several extremely vicious Chupacabras in the El Yunque rainforest. And I may be saying that wrong. But what happened to them? What happened to these Chupacabras they captured? Well, let's let's talk about Roosevelt Road's Naval Air Station, Eric. Ooh. This comes into a little, we're going to get a little X-Filesy here. Hmm. And if you know me at all, man, I love the X-Files. But let's take a step back. Let's look at 1957. There's a couple of incidents I want to talk about that kind of get us where we're, where we're going on this little trip. 1957. There's an alleged UFO crash in the hills of Kenavanas, which again, we've talked about that village twice before. Uh, the locals claim to have seen a, a patch of forest cleared. Uh, in a way indicative of the crash of a large object, where it's kind of like comes crashing in, knocks the trees down, scrapes the land clear. Roswell type. Uh, and it ended in an in a empty saucer-shaped area. So either the craft was able to leave on its own or it was recovered. And reportedly, after that, local the local populace began to experience gross mutations. I don't know what that means by that. This sort of left open-ended. Kind of maybe radioactivity kind of thing? 
1984, we have another alleged UFO crash in the El Yunca rainforest. Uh, early morning, when supposedly a large circular-shaped object crashed into the ground, uh, witnesses claim it was flying erratically just before crashing. Maybe the occupants were unable to control the vehicle, whatever. The U.S. Air Force and the CIA were dispatched to take a look at it, and it's alleged that they recovered alien bodies as well as a couple of dead chupacabras. Hmm. So are the aliens bringing the chupacabras and dropping them off? Like you said, these predator dogs in the movie. Those bodies were allegedly transported to Roosevelt Roads Naval Station located in Puerto Rico. It's a U.S. military installation. Uh, There they're stored in a deeply buried fortified bunker. They also say some bodies may have been moved to Florida. And Florida does happen to have its own set of chupacabra sightings later on. Interesting. Now, I lay the groundwork for this, and I, I talk about these chupacabra bodies and, and possibly possibly some live occupants, maybe? Very Roswell-like. This is where it gets really interesting. This is perhaps my, my favorite potential origin for the chupacabra here, Eric. Let's talk about the tragedy of Hurricane Hugo for a moment. This, all these puzzle pieces are going to come together. I know you're looking at me with some confusion there. <laughs> Bear with me, buddy. Hurricane Hugo strikes Puerto Rico in 1989. Dozens are left dead. Uh, devastated the island's crops. Banana and coffee exports were basically eradicated at that point in time. Estimates say the damages reached a total of nearly $1 billion in total destruction. Very tragic. You're talking a lot. Tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans were left homeless. And six years later, the Chupacabra first emerges. Now, it is widely accepted amongst the Puerto Ricans that the Chupacabra escaped from the secret U.S. government facility. The underground bunkers. At Roosevelt Roads. And the hurricane unleashed this little this little monster upon the world apparently the chupacabra remained undetected for that time because it was roaming el yunque rainforest uh, and i think i've said that two different ways now although a lot of people argue that uh, that, that story is not quite plausible uh, el yunque is a sizable park it's about twenty-eight thousand acres it is also a favorite tourist attraction and it attracts over one million visitors per year and no one reported seeing a chupacabra a lot of boots there. On the ground there, yeah, yeah. No one reported seeing a chupacabra there prior to 1995. So yeah, that's that's a real esque files esque origin story with with a secret government facility and then the devastation of the hurricane comes through and then unleashes this monster upon the world. And they escape. <laughs> and and again, you know, they, they they were in this this rainforest. Just kind of roaming around until they finally run into some people somewhere. Possibly mating and uh, increasing in numbers. And, and I think when we talk about creatures, when, you know, we have to have a mating population. You have to have enough of them out there yeah. to, uh, to be able to, to keep the bloodline going. Now, I, that's, that's my favorite Chupacabra. This, this little guy is the pictures of him. You know, it's a very alien-esque. A lot of people compare it to the creature Sill from the movie Species, mm, which okay. came out at roughly the same time. Um, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that it looks like Sill, but then again, I watch a lot of movies and whatnot, and, and I think it's a, I, I, I like this version of the Chupacabra more than the other, but if we're going to talk about Chupacabras, I think we got to talk about both. Yes. Now, this other version of the Chupacabra is kind of a Southwestern America kind of thing, um, but it is very canine-like, and it resembles a dog or a coyote uh, described as hairless, often looking like a beast stricken with mange. Some people think it might be some sort of breed of hairless wild dog. Uh, it does have a pronounced spinal ridge with uh, noticeable, noticeably pronounced eye sockets, fangs, and claws. Uh, you'll see a lot of uh, pictures if you go on Google. If you do a chupacabra search, you'll probably find pictures of this variety before you will of the other variety. And there are even taxidermied subjects supposedly One in, in Texas. One Texas was supposedly yeah. found struck by a car along the roadside in the 
Yeah. Now, it's possible. Uh, I have heard of, of where a young man had shot what he thought was a chupacabra. Uh, it turns out there is some kind of weird dog breed that is hairless and kind of resembles it's the chupacabra. A, a Mexican hairless dog. And and so what he actually did was kill his neighbor's dog. Oops. <laughs> and not not good. Yeah, not that. You don't want to be doing well. that. That doesn't end well. Uh, but apparently this type of chupacabra wasn't seen really until about the mid 2000s. And and you're 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 telling me I'm wrong. I have some earlier accounts back to 1950. Actually. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Well, I didn't get quite. I didn't get that far back. Well, the chupacabra story is much like an onion, sincerely, with so many layers. You know, as Bill was talking about, that you've got the Puerto Rican, Latin American, reptilian, alien-like. We've got the southwestern, more dog, hairless, long fang. But I dove into. Uh, some killings and some incidences in North Carolina. So I'm going to bring this back a little closer to home, uh, but in the United States, more than 60 unexplained killings in the North Carolina area took place starting in 1950. Multiple sheep, goats, and pets were killed in the same fashion uh, in this state. It was a large broadband area spanning from the coast of Bolivia, North Carolina, to a small town called uh, Bladenboro, all the way inland to Charlotte and Lexington, uh, and as much as Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, this range it was noted to be much larger than any known predator in the United States in that region. That we're talking that that's a hundreds and hundreds of miles, and for one predator to travel that distance was just a, a, obscure. Uh, it seems to be also an instant killer. Uh, the necks ripped open. You know, very little blood to the point it was actually noted that blood was sucked away with such force on the attack that even it crushed the skulls. So something extremely powerful. The creature here is described as about four foot in length, similar to a dog or a canine-like, but with more cat-like movement, uh, very stealthy with long pronounced fangs, like that of a vampire where it actually got the nickname Vampire Beast. Uh, it's usually a dark brown in color with cat-like talons or claws. However, ironically, those claws don't seem to show up in footprints. The, the first account goes back uh, to North Carolina near Bladenboro back in 1954. That's about 125 miles from Charlotte, North Carolina. And the way in which the beast dispatched its prey was quite chilling. Everyone at the time was afraid of these strange attacks, and the city of Bladenboro was declared literally an unsafe area to travel to at that point in time. Now you said this is in the, the 50s? This is in 1950, 54 to be precise. There was warnings put out to stay away from the area by local police uh, in varying different cities. The nickname was the Vampire Beast was adopted by several local newspapers and tabloids. And on January 1954, uh, another related uh, incident, a 20-year-old woman walks out of her front door porch. It's about 7.30 in the evening. And uh, she happens to look up and sees this creature prowling closer to her as if it's stalking along the side of the house, trying not to be detected as if she is the prey. She immediately screams and runs back inside the house. The next morning, when her husband arrives, they, they go out and they find some cat-like tracks. These were as much as six inches in diameter, so quite large. Now, if you'll forgive me, though, this sounds quite a bit larger than what we call chupacabra today. But the creature was described as only four foot. Yeah. I mean, that's that's big that's footprints big. for a that, four foot that, creature. That's big. Um, so what they're imagining is more of a stocky creature, not what you're going to see 
as in the Texan version, you know, yeah, the, more the, the later slender versions. version. They found these cat-like tracks, but it was uh, documented that there were no claw marks. The area had lost nearly 60 dogs, goats, and sheep, and other livestock, each one of them drained of blood and left uneaten. The attacks then vanished almost as quickly as they began. Now, a few miles away in Bolivia, North Carolina, a local resident by the name of Bill Robinson stated in October of 2007, now here we jump forward many, many years, his pit bull by the name of Ray Ray was one of the victims of a similar attack that numbered nearly 10 pet deaths in this small span of time in uh, 2007. The man's son alerted his father that their dog, which was chained in the backyard, was not moving. Bill, the father, immediately went to investigate and quickly found the dog was deceased. But as he rolled the dog over, was quite startled to see he was extremely lightweight. Uh, After further, further analysis, he observed that all the internal organs had been drained or removed from the dog without any incision or marking. So quite strange. Well, like I said, um, even in these chupacabra stories, you do have that element of the cattle mutilation. Mm, So it's very similar. Precise surgeon type. Uh, He had never obviously seen anything like this and was quite alarmed. As to not alarm his, his son anymore, he wrapped the dog in a sheet and buried him quite quickly at some distance away from the house. The next morning, however, the story took a little bit more of a macabre twist. The dog's body had been unearthed and drugged back to exactly where he had found it the day before. Once again, Bill wrapped and carried the dog off, and this time buried him in an adjacent field. They began to kind of investigate the area behind his house. There was a nearby church, and there some of uh, his friends, some local hunters, had spotted once again some strange footprints. They were nearly four inches in diameter yet again. They exhibited again no signs of claws. Eerily, he had learned that this was the same type of uh, tracks that was reported nearly 50 years uh, prior in Bladenboro. Now, these were entirely too large of tracks to be any sort of canine or dog, and it was speculated that it could be a bear or some type of a large cat mountain lion. However, there were again no claw prints, which both species normally, but don't always, but normally do exhibit. I was going to say historically, historically, in any picture I've ever seen of a bear print shows you, you the, can the claws. see the claws. Yeah, I mean, now four days after the loss of the family pet Ray Ray, the pit bull belonging to Bill Robinson, another local neighbor and friend by the name of Leon Williams lost his two-year-old pit bull uh, named Coco. At approximately 5:45 p.m., he had heard his dog barking loudly and yelping from beneath his front porch. Now, I assume it took him a few minutes to get his shoes on or whatever, but he he went out semi-immediately and and started to investigate. Uh, He could not find his dog, but found the chain outstretched tight, and his dog was missing on the end of it. Leon uh, had called his son, uh, who lived nearby, and he was able to find his father's dog, deceased. Uh, Most of one of of her shoulders had been entirely removed and ripped off, but yet there were no signs of blood, and the body itself appeared to have been drained of blood. Local police and university members believed it was most likely another pit bull that was the likely killer. However, as most would agree, with a dog versus dog attack, there's usually blood and usually a signs of a struggle. There was not in either case, and again, it seemed the kill was extremely quick and very lethal. The father and son decided to uh, dig up the remains of their dog, Coco, several months later, to have a full-blown investigation done by a local veterinarian who specialized in dogs and all-dog breeds. 
Many of the bones that would often be key pieces, however, were not recovered. However, luckily the skull, which was a key critical part, was exhumed. The marks, the veterinarian said, was similar to that of a bobcat. However, noted the bobcat would be much too small, normally weighing 40 pounds, where these dogs would be 100 plus, you know, up to 150 pounds. So the bobcat was quickly ruled out. Another speculation is, again, repeated, a possible another large dog was likely the culprit. The results actually were inconclusive, but it is believed that the skull was most likely dislocated from the spine, which did not seem like a line with any other dog attack, but as the vet said, more along the lines of a wild creature, most likely a mountain lion or cougar. However, local game authorities were quick to speak up and said there is no documented evidence that this type of cat has existed this side of the Mississippi for over a hundred years due to the changes in the environment and lack of suitable sustenance. Well, they say Missouri. Heard that about Missouri too. They say Missouri Conservation used to say we didn't have them here, but they've been cited. So yeah, I mean we've seen I've seen pictures that people have taken. So yeah, I, I game know cams out there. and stuff. Yeah. Now, about that same time of uh, the attack on Bill Robinson's dog and Leon Williams, uh, almost 200 miles away in Lexington, North Carolina, goats were the victim of an eerily matching attack. Uh, Their throats and necks were attacked. Uh, Some were noticeable with only two puncture wounds, again, very vampire-ish, and again, left uneaten. A local resident by the name of Glenda Floyd one morning had found her entire gated goat herd was dead. Uh, Something had savagely killed nearly a dozen of her goats, going over a nearly five-foot-tall, very structural fence. I watched videos and everything of this. Uh, The fence was even submerged underground. I mean, it it was a very fortified area. Was it the same creature, or was it several species, they begin to wonder. Now, again, just up the road from Glenda Floyd, there was a gentleman by the name of Billy Yao in neighboring town of Greensboro, and he also had 10 goats that were found attacked and killed. These were strung out across the field. Uh, He didn't necessarily have an enclosure, but once again, single bite around the neck as if something grabbed them and strangled them. Now, Now, uh, that's that's how a big cat attacks, right? Exactly. Like a mountain lion, bobcat, something like that. Now, both of these events were passed off as coyote attacks, which did seem to match some of the bite marks around the neck. However, coyotes normally kill for food. Yeah. Uh, Again, none of these creatures were eaten upon whatsoever. The one pit bull had mentioned the shoulder had been torn off. Kind of wrapping the North Carolina aspect up, many years later, a Dr. Robert Benson, uh, he's the director of the Center for Bioacoustics. He uses and and explores sounds. Uh, And his friend, Dr. Joe Fox, which is a professor at Texas A&M University, they decided to use their knowledge of sounds to help identify to the owners what they might have heard during that same time frame of them losing their pets and their, and their goats. Animals ranging from the sound calls of native bears, coyotes, foxes, and some other more exotic creature sounds were played from the woods. I believe there was a total of 14 different species. Now, the men tried to simulate the attacks as much as possible. Like with the goat attack, they literally set up in the goat pen. They had the lady set outside her front porch. The men with the uh, pit bull attacks, again, he he removed himself to the woods, had kind of a a loudspeaker, and they were again right outside on their front porch, and asked them to listen to each one. Did not identify, you know, this is a coyote, this is a fox. Just identified them as numbers to see if anything would ring any bells with them. Bill Robinson quickly zeroes in on sound number six. 
which ironically was an exotic tiger noise. Wow. Uh, Now, how could that be possible in North Carolina? Maybe escape from a zoo or something. Now, uh, I'm just going to throw this out there. Tiger King became quite the phenomenon. Yes. Wasn't wasn't one of those guys based in that area? Didn't uh, uh, actually? I think Anton. I think I think you may be correct. Somewhere along the coast, in North or South Carolina area, too unthinkable that one of those guys lost a tiger. That's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) The team then traveled uh, 200 miles away to Glenda Floyd's home there in Lexington. uh, The lady who had lost all of her goats and uh, Robert and Joe again set up their equipment from the actual kill site, playing the sounds. And uh, she was seated outside her home uh, at nightfall. They even portrayed it at the same approximate time and everything. Now, she didn't recognize any of the calls per se that they played, but was very insistent she heard what she thought was cat-like behavior, cat-like sounds, but does not recognize the same tiger call that uh, Bill Robinson had earlier. Now, we'd already kind of touched on this, but an update a little bit. 2008 in North Carolina they started receiving pictures of mountain lions on trail cams. (laughs) So very much like Missouri, the uh, conservation agency comes out and they're like, no, no, it couldn't be. It's been over a hundred years. Now, granted the picture that the gentleman took with his cell phone was blurry. It was, it was dusk, but it was very distinguishable. A mountain lion cougar, the large ears, the, the muscle structure. And as you pointed out, uh, the single bite wounds around the neck was that's very prominent with how a, a mountain lion would take down prey. When you when you watch any of these nature shows, the big cats, tigers, lions, cheetahs, jaguars, when they when they attack prey, that that's their main goal is to, to go for the neck yes. and to cut off the the cut off the blood supply, cut off Eventually oxygen. They quit kicking and they win. And yeah, and yeah if, if it's a strong enough, big enough cat, it's going to break the neck, and and so you know that that, that immobilizes prey pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, as we also talked about, North Carolina was just one area that I dove into, but uh, there were there's several sightings of the American version, if you will, of the chupacabras. Texas is a very hot spot, uh, and it is more of a pictures that they have actually gotten on game cams and stuff is more of a, a hairless dog-looking creature. It's very skinny, lanky, coyote-like. Greyhound-ish kind yeah. of. Uh, I mean, yeah, very with, with thin dark bones. colored skin. And there is a very popular belief, and they have proven that coyotes and dogs and wolves can interbreed, and they believe that that could be some new crossbreed that has occurred. Well, I know I have uh, really, really the beginning of these American chupacabra attacks uh, as far as that goes. And then I I didn't find the the stories you were telling, but they definitely seem very much in line. But that in 2004, something began attacking livestock in Texas and, and you know, looking at the the victims and the creatures, the the livestock that were killed and the fashion in which they were killed, a lot of the South American residents, the million people, you know, they had immigrated or had family from the from South America. They were like, oh, you know, it's the chupacabra, it's the chupacabra. And when this, when a local farmer finally did kill, shot and kill one of the creatures, it definitely did not resemble the South American chupacabra, this little alien esque creature. But it was this. This lean, lanky, hairless dog canine thing that kind of looks like a hairless coyote. Now, the test they did on on the creature he killed revealed that it was, in fact, a coyote and that the beast was stricken with mange. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have this hairless dog. But to this day, they continue to have these sightings. And and honestly, I don't imagine that mange runs that rampant in the the wild, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, and most most veterinarians will tell you that... uh, 
at least with most cases uh, with canines and stuff with mange, it doesn't affect the full body usually at one time. It's not that yeah, it, bad. It's very it would be like one raggedy. side or, you know, the, the rear end or the head or something along that line. In October and December of 2018, uh, there was suspected chupacabra activity reported in Manipur, India. Uh, during that time, there were many domestic animals that were killed in a fashion similar to American chupacabra attacks. Uh, several people reported seeing a creature that matched our American chupacabra, again, that long, lanky, hairless, dog-like creature. Uh, but for forensic experts were of the opinion that these animals were killed by street dogs, which I guess is a problem in India. Mm. Obviously, you know, it's a different environment than what we're used to, and apparently they do have problems with with. Homeless dogs, I guess, street dogs just roaming the street in packs and kind of going about their own business. You know, dogs with no masters doing their own thing. And then I have uh, in October of 2019, a video taken in Lares, Puerto Rico, shows the end results of a chupacabra attack. Does not show the creature and and does not opine on whether that creature was, uh, you know, the typical Puerto Rican chupacabra or American chupacabra. But it does show the results of of attack on a bunch of chickens where they they've been left you know near bloodless and you know strewn about. So uh, it seems that the North American chupacabra kind of took over mm-hmm. after the the nineties and then maybe very early two thousands. And so now when people talk about chupacabra, you're talking about that hairless canine like creature more so than the little short that's, squat that's alien. The, I think you said if you go to the internet, that's what's probably going to pull up. Yeah, first. you're going to see a lot of those pictures. And like I said, you have taxidermied specimens and uh, Texas and basically the creature's been seen all over the country now, all over the United States. Now I will add the uh, creature in Texas, and I believe it was the one that's been taxidermied. They've recently, I say recently in the past 10 years, have taken some uh, uh, samples from the bone and at least some of the results was inconclusive that it did not match a dog and it did not match a coyote or a fox. However, they found markers of both creatures, which would almost lend itself to a early proof that that is what it was, was a yeah. crossbreed of some sort. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's not unheard of, you know, people, the wolves and, and, and such. So, you know, if, if there was a, I mean, it would have to be a pretty hardy domesticated dog, I would think, to survive the interaction. But surely, I mean, right time of the year, the fancy strikes a coyote just right, and then the next thing you know, you've got some kind of wild hybrid running around that, again, people can't identify. And Well, and again, with the with the American version, it seems to be hairless. Um, obviously, that would be a little hard in the winter to survive, but they do seem to be more on the coast, Texas. Well, it, I was going to say, it's a, it's a southwestern states. kind of yeah. thing. So You definitely, I'm not saying there's not any reports, but you don't hear a lot of reports of Minnesota, Chupacabra, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> Or something but, along but again, those lines. I think at this point they've been seen in almost every state in the continental U.S. Yeah, yeah. So and and again, you know, when I was talking about the South American version, the South American version's been seen in quite a lot of places in North America too. Now, did so. you find in your research any ties? I, I found a couple where it almost identified these as possible skinwalkers. No, I did not find that connection. I did find a couple. It was very loosely. There wasn't really a lot to, to chase down. But I thought it was interesting, and the thought was that's why they're so hideously disfigured, is it was a, a human cursed or whatever. And we've talked about skinwalkers yeah. before on, on our episodes, and you know it was part of the transformation, and you know, maybe it didn't go as smoothly as, as, <laughs> as what was intended, but, and that explains more of why they're seen in, in multiple areas as a human would travel. Yeah. You know, possibly to different states. So, uh, again, I didn't find a lot there, but I, I thought it was at least an interesting mention. I, no, I didn't. I did not find that connection. 
I could understand it, especially with the region, you know, Southwestern primarily. Yeah. Yeah. Which I believe that the skinwalker is sort of more of a that area. tribes of native Americans and stuff. Yeah. Well, we will leave that decision to you. The, as stated, the chupacabra has as many layers as an onion, <laughs> uh, depending on what version and what time frame that you might want to investigate it. But I will assure you there are tons and tons of reference on the internet, pictures, sightings. It's got to be something. Uh, it's just too many sightings out there to be totally thrown off and forfeit. But this is just another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.